we are both here at 11FS headquarters in London. We work for episode 31 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you South Korea bans anonymous accounts, that $400 million hack, and we have not one but two interviews. We have Malcolm LaRider from NEO and Adam Ludwin, the CEO of Chain.com. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. All right, Colin G. Platt, G. Sass himself, you're not near a field, you're in a room. What's going on? Well, London Fields isn't that far away, is it? <laughs> How is life? Do you have citizenship? Do you feel like you got through the border absolutely fine? Well, yeah, I got through the border this morning in, in the UK absolutely fine. I had a good chat with the, the border control about Bitcoin. Um, I obviously told him to buy as many ripples as he possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to mess with UK border police. Like, you would think that that would get you profiled in a crowd, but Colin just starts conversation with people randomly people walk into a room and they're gonna colin will just pick on them and go you do you own any cryptocurrency like just surveying people well the thing is like being american in london you can just talk to people randomly and then rather than thinking you're crazy they just go oh you're american <laughs> and as soon as they hear my accent they go yeah okay that's fine all right before we start the show we just wanted to let you know that today's episode of blockchain insider is brought to you by corda corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy even if they live near fields Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets like fields um, and <laughs> legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 in collaboration with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology partners who may or may not have been near a field. <laughs> Todd, if you're listening, I really hope that you guys are putting some project on a field on Corda. Hey, Corda is ready to build on today. The financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets <laughs> on a field. Oh, sorry, guys, at Corda. To learn more about Corda, go to Corda.net. CordaCon, of course, is happening in Tokyo on March the 7th. Don't miss out on CordaCon by emailing events at r3.com. Uh, Colin, we better get on with the news before this field thing just overtakes me and I, I can't cope anymore. I, I start waving at cameras. All sorts will happen. Oh, did you hear about that? Simon was on BBC this morning and was waving to his friends and family. Uh, at the end of it and looking like a total tool. I'm especially good at looking like a tool, as are um, some stories we'll get into today. Uh, and there's a crypto exchange that looks a little bit that way. But before we get to that story, uh, we've got one from Bitcoin.com, where the Korean crypto exchanges are going to share data with banks uh, in a new uh, account system this month. So, Colin, talk, walk us through this one. Uh, Bitcoin is dead, obviously. Um, let's start there. Um, so South Korea uh, was very famous for being one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sources of uh, Bitcoin liquidity in the last couple of months. So um, for those who have been following it for a little while, China was the player in Bitcoin for several months until um, they came along and, and tightened rules and banned Bitcoin, quote unquote. Um, they didn't actually ban Bitcoin, but they did They did shut down a lot of the exchange activity. A lot of that migrated and, and Korea took over the crown. Um, a lot of that was propagated on two things. First is you could trade without fees. I could buy and sell, and I didn't have to pay anything to buy or sell other than a bid-ask spread. And the second thing, which was really important, I didn't need to give my name. Um, so a lot of people would use this for a variety of reasons. One of them may have been money laundering. Um, but uh, the Korean regulator, very rightfully, um, I think, has come in and said, A, people need to put names in. 
And B, you're going to need to share that information of who is trading on your exchange because A, we want to make sure they're not moving illicit funds and, and B, we want to make sure they're paying taxes. It's hard to argue with this. I mean, it, the way it has been reported initially was the word ban was seen much more than the word ban of anonymous accounts. Like, there's a very big difference between those two. Uh, but it, it's it's a weirdly bearish signal because uh, it suggests that the market may have believed that a lot of activity uh, in, in Korea was illicit and this is a, a sensible move. It is. And I think what was really interesting when we we're kind of watching this stuff unfold is there seemed to be a big disagreement from the, the South Korean Ministry of Justice and, and the National Police and what they call the Blue House or the um, equivalent to the, the White House, but in South Korea, um, where the Ministry of Justice, the police rated exchanges, um, particularly because of this anonymous stuff, but they didn't say that at the time. They just rated exchanges and said, we want all your copies of information. And the Ministry of the Blue House, the executive branch, came in and said, we're not actually banning this stuff. That's not in our plans. That's not interesting for us. Um, there's been lots of speculation about whether they have ties in cryptocurrency or not. Um, and, and maybe that is, maybe it isn't. But they were very clear and said, we're not here to ban this. This doesn't make sense for us to ban Bitcoin trading, cryptocurrency trading, but we do need to have controls, which is what we've always said. So at first it seemed like a disagreement, and then it seemed to just be more of a misunderstanding. Uh, that misunderstanding uh, seems to be one that hasn't really been shared uh, on an international basis. If you look at Europe and the US, this has been going on for some time. Exchanges have uh, required KYC once you're uh, depositing over a certain amount, once you're working with over a certain amount. I mean, it's fairly standard practice in the rest of the world, uh, as is some in information sharing. Now, it could be better. There are no rules around how it needs to be done. And when we spoke to the CEO of Bitflyer from Japan last week, Yuzo Keno, he talked about how the need for regulation was driven largely by the fact that uh, without uh, sort of working on regulation as an industry, you end up having rules imposed on you that might be outright bans. So um, looks like there's been a sensible outcome from, from all perspectives. Um, but of course, in Japan, there is other news. We picked it up from The Guardian, but unless you were living under a rock, I think it was in just about every uh, bit of news that was there. Uh, so there was a cryptocurrency exchange called CoinCheck, I believe, um, and they are now going to refund um, a stolen $400 plus million. Uh, this, is, this is bigger than Mt. Gox. This is bigger than Mt. Gox was at the time. When it was first reported, I think the equivalent was actually more than 400. I think it was like five and a half billion yen at the time. Uh, the price goes up and down. So it is bigger currently in a dollar amount than Mt. Gox was. However, if Mt. Gox happened today, I think the equivalent would have been uh, in the billions of dollars. Um, so obviously, Bitcoin has gone up a lot since uh, the Mt. Gox hack. So um, CoinCheck uh, lost uh, holdings in, in a cryptocurrency called NEM, N-E-M, uh, which is not well known in the Western markets, but is quite large, particularly in Japan. Um, lots of different projects going on with that. Um, there was some speculation when it first happened that there may be a fork. The NEM team came out and said, we're not doing that, um, which I think is a positive thing uh, that they weren't going to fork. Um, even uh, when Ethereum had a fork around the DAO, it wasn't because of an exchange loss. It was um, a question within the system itself and potential sustainability. So they've, they've gone down that same road and said, we're not going to fork. And the company has come together and said, we will refund all of our customers. Um, un unlike the Bitfinex hack that happened a while ago, they had effectively a bail-in. All clients lost some money uh, at Bitfinex uh, to subsidize the losses of, of the actual money because it's in what's called a commingle account, which I think you put all of your, your money in the middle in a pot. And then we said, you can move this money around, but we can't identify that this particular Bitcoin or NEM coin is Simon's or mine. 
It's interesting behavior because with Mt. Gox, if I'd have put my money in Mt. Gox uh, and I'd have bought Bitcoins and left it there at Mt. Gox, uh, it wasn't until years later I got an equivalent amount back once the courts intervened. And I think because the courts intervened in Japan, CoinCheck have gone, well, we just need to get ahead of this and we just need to say we're going to refund everybody, which is a bit different with Bitfinex. To me, the really astonishing thing here is the exchange has $400 million in cash to refund. Like, my God. How much money are these places making? I've heard I've heard talks about some of the big exchanges making multi-billion dollars a year, and we still don't know who the founders are. Um, but uh, these guys have proved that they can reach into their pockets and pull out $400 million and continue operations. And this wasn't even a top exchange. Selling shovels in a gold rush. Uh, next story, um, speaking of uh, shovels in a gold rush, a story from uh, Engadget. Uh, the app Robinhood, which is a fintech app that allows you to buy uh, stocks, shares, and, and other financial instruments as, as a mobile-only app, which has, uh, I think, a monthly subscription of $1.49, uh, allows you now to trade cryptocurrencies for free. And I don't know if it's completely free at one forty nine, but still, um, they've ended up with nearly a million people on the waitlist, Colin. Um, what, is there anything going on here? Or is this as simple as it sounds? Is it just a user grab? Is it attention grabbing? Or have they done something truly special? Well, uh, I think it's a couple of different things. So um, first, I believe, um, and, and what I see in here is you can't currently buy it. You can sign up to be on the waitlist to next month be able to trade cryptocurrencies, regardless of whether you're an existing customer or a new customer. Um, a lot of people have been saying, well, this is going to kill Coinbase, which is the largest exchange in the US, or at least the most widely used exchange uh, in the US by retail customers. Um, and uh, what what I think is, is interesting about this is there are lots of rumors talking about Robinhood actually losing money on each client that they have. Um, maybe this will turn the tide, but maybe the this wait list that they have in there is simply because they're losing money every time you trade. So we see this a lot in the fintech world. Um, regular listeners will know we've got a, a sister podcast, uh, Fintech Insider, uh, and we've talked about uh, Revolut and, and TransferWise and many of these other fintech companies using VCs, so VC-funded arbitrage. They're losing money, but they're aiming to grow users. So eventually, the amount of users they would have paying a subscription would outweigh the cost of their operations. It looks and feels a little bit like that. Uh, one of the big problems with investing generally is you have the likes of a Vanguard and a Fidelity and, and some of the newer platforms like Wealthify and SoFi that have sort of um, tried to change to attract a new generation, but you have a generation of people under 35 that just are not saving. People just don't know how to deal with their money. They're not thinking about money. But you go ask anybody under the age of 35 if they heard of cryptocurrency. You ask anybody under the age of 25 if they've heard of cryptocurrency. The answer is yes. And they'll have 10 picks of the greatest coin you've ever heard of that nobody else has ever heard of. And they've all... And it's become this sort of uh, way of paying attention, and it's almost become a marketing ploy and plan. Most of them have a Coinbase account. Some even have Binance accounts. This is a way to get people to think about investing. can be really positive, but let's see how this plays out because there are, is Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies investments or are they, are they gambling? It's, it's really hard to say. So there's a reputational question and a reputational risk that, that's been taken here by the likes of Robinhood and Revolut and others that are in that fintech space that could argue fintech quote financial services legitimacy just adding into that i think one thing that continually blows my mind about cryptocurrencies and, and young people getting into it is that very attraction of um i i don't see equities or bonds or, or traditional things as being something that is available to me as a, as a younger potential investor but cryptocurrencies as being that very natural thing and i question whether it's 
because it's new and attractive and shiny and it may be the future, or whether it's it's simply because the avenues to get into the other things are so stiff and ugly. I think it's both. And I think there's a third thing. So yes, the avenues to get into the other thing is stiff and ugly and this is this is sexy and exciting. But also I think there's an element of um, that risk reward, uh, low attention span theater. There's this like, I might win really big. There's surprise and delight. It's playing to that dopamine, uh, dopaminogenic uh, kind of interface that we're used to now. Everything is instant. Everything's snap. Everything, everything is right now. And, and cryptocurrencies play into that uh, in a way that uh, I think traditional investments haven't. And it, the best possible advice, um, so we did an investment show on FinTech Insider, that you can give over a 30-year uh, life cycle is invest in the basics and hold, and you'll do a lot better than any clever investment strategy anywhere. I mean, Warren Buffett is living proof of that fact. Uh, unless you're Mark Zuckerberg and you build something of real value, those are the two ways to really get um, significantly wealthy. And so uh, this is this is kind of playing to that short attention span grabs your attention. The question is, can apps like this convert that short attention span immediacy into and, and that desire to get rich quick into really becoming financially literate, understanding how to deal with your money? It's, it's a fair question. Alrighty, next story from Coindesk. Uh, Bitcoin exchange BTCC uh, just got acquired. Uh, walk us through this one, Colin. Oh, this this was kind of an amazing one. So uh, for those that aren't aware, BTCC or formerly Bitcoin China um, was uh, the oldest exchange in China. Uh, it was set up when Mt. Gox was still a thing. Uh, we talked about that just a moment ago. Um, run by a guy named Bobby Lee, who is a U.S. Chinese citizen. Um, we talked about how China had cracked down. Um, this this fund has been, uh, sorry, this fund, uh, this exchange has been purchased, uh, acquired by a Hong Kong-based fund uh, with, I guess, the plans to move out of mainland China and into Hong Kong. Uh, so it's a really interesting thing to see. Exchanges are being purchased. Is this a consolidation? Is this because uh, even small exchanges are able to reach into their pocket and pull out $400 million? There is a lot of money here. Or is this something else? Um, I think we're going to start to see more consolidation. We're going to talk about another story about consolidation here later. Um, there are a lot of people making a ton of money because they're selling shovels into a gold rush. They're going to start buying the weaker players. Kraken has been very active in this over the last few years. Um, whether it pays off or not is another thing to be seen. Um, I am very interested in when we start to see private equity funds or possibly even banks moving into the space, purchasing Bitcoin exchanges because of the, what we just so profitable. About. Not only that, but you're able to access a new set of investors. You're able, all of these things we talked about in blockchain minus the Bitcoin land is how do we hold these things? How do we make sure people are able to trade them? They look very different from traditional exchanges. Well, and I think that's the um, natively digital versus uh, digitized kind of question. Uh, any natively digital asset, any crypto asset, looks very, very different to the you know, a dematerialized asset in, in the uh, world of securities and derivatives or any of the alternative financial instruments. So there's a really interesting question there. Going back to um, Bobby Lee and BTCC, don't forget that in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, the HKMA, uh, has its own jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And you also have a lot of asset managers there and a lot of single family offices and a very large uh, wealth presence. So you have 
effectively a great home market that you can move into that's right next door that is also considered the gateway to mainland China. I think it's an interesting move when uh, the Chinese uh, kind of uh, PBOC and the authorities in China have been uh, kind of pushing to maybe prevent some of this activity. It almost Hong Kong almost becomes the offshore for, for mainland China. It, it, there in, and Singapore as well. And I think it's hard to overstate the importance of Hong Kong and Singapore, not only for China, but for greater East Asia. Um, these are the places where Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies are really gaining traction in a way that we haven't seen in the US. You were out in Korea not so long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 10 times what it is here in London. And I think London's still 100 times what it is in France. I'm, I'm in the, on next to a field. So, you know, obviously the cows aren't trading Bitcoin. But um, People are not talking about it the same way there that they're talking about it when we're in fintech London and people in fintech London aren't talking about it the same way they're talking about it in East Asia. I can't wait for the day when the accounts are trading uh, Bitcoin. But um, it seems the hedge funds are going bullish on Bitcoin futures. You made the perfect segue for me, Colin. Well done. Uh, article from Wall Street Journal. And by the way, I saw my producer, Laura, look and just be like, he said the word cow. You can you could segue this and like transmit it with her eyes. That was amazing, Laura. Thank you. Um, hedge funds apparently are going bullish on Bitcoin futures. So um, this is obviously we've talked a lot about the futures products. Colin, what's going on here? Have they gone bullish? Moo? Uh, well, so the Bitcoin futures are still reportable through the CFTC, which means when people are buying and selling Bitcoin futures at the CME and the CBO, CBOE, um, that information all gets passed, including what types of clients they are. So they talked about leveraged funds, of which some of those happen to be Bitcoin funds. I don't. I think there's a lot of new entrants in here that may be classed in that, which aren't really hedge funds and they're not the same as when we think about hedge funds um so it's still unclear to me who exactly is buying or selling these things i have anecdotally heard a lot of institutional investors are starting to play in the space um but it's still very low volumes when we compare it with bitcoin spot and i think it's going to stay that way at least for a little while as things start to to turn on um and and let's be very honest these products aren't perfect um, they are cash settled, which when you have a very risky product is very difficult to manage from a risk perspective. So um, hopefully they'll be able at some point in the future, and we can talk a lot about the regulations. We're going to talk some more about regulations today. Um, hopefully they'll be able to have a physically settled Bitcoin future. And I think that will start to drive a lot more volume into these cash settled products, as well as a potential new product. However, will the CFTC, will banks allow that to happen? We don't know. Well, and you're going to need a lot of infrastructure before any of that stuff can kind of happen. And a story on Bloomberg, uh, that BitGo, um, famous uh, kind of one of the major wallet providers and uh, software providers in in the Bitcoin space, very well known, uh, are going to acquire a Bitcoin custodian. So um, brief recap, what's a custodian? uh, Who are they acquiring? Why are they doing it? So very simply, a a custodian is somebody that holds your assets for you. In in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency speak, that means they hold your private keys and they also send you some information about that. Uh, it's a tricky world because uh, the risks are very different than um, if I'm holding Apple shares. Uh, so why why this is important is Bitco, as you mentioned, was a wallet. Um, their, their entire raison d'etre in life was to make uh, institutions more able to deal with cryptocurrencies for a variety of different reasons. Now, this could be anything from I'm a, I'm a merchant looking to work with cryptocurrencies. I need some of these services. Now they're focusing, and, and we're going to hear from Jameson Lop next week on the show, and I think we even have a little cutaway for him. Um, but they're talking about how we can offer this specifically to investors, people that want to buy this because they think Bitcoin's going to go up or down. So 
what they've done is they bought this company called Kingdom Trust or acquired this company, and they're looking to push it in. It has about $20 billion in institutional funds. So a lot of money. Uh, some of it's in cryptocurrency, some of it's in other things. Uh, they're based out of Palo Alto, California, so it's kind of the right place to be doing this. Um, this could dramatically change things because they are plugged into a lot of companies. They're opening up new ways that if, let's say Vanguard, we talked about them, or BlackRock, the biggest asset management in the world, says, hey, we like the idea that millennials can be buying new funds from us. Why don't we offer something that has Bitcoin in it? This is a, a really easy access route. So you can see the pieces of the puzzle kind of coming together here a little bit. You got Robinhood, which is the, the future of the customer front end, using Bitcoin as a way to attract people into investing, which is something the likes of a Vanguard and a Fidelity and a BlackRock are really concerned about. Like, why aren't people investing anymore? Robinhood is showing you an outcome. But also, if that those, those organizations are very concerned about Bitcoin, I think primarily from a reputational standpoint, because it's unclear from a regulatory standpoint, and we'll come back to that, but also because the infrastructure is weak and here is an organization that has some infrastructure let's hear a, a brief sound clip from jameson talking about some of the values of custody so i think we're going to see two different things happen and we're already seeing them start to happen and one of those is going to be the rise of reputable custodial services. Um, and, you know, I think they're going to start by catering to the institutions. And eventually that'll probably also be catering to like family offices and just high net worth individuals. And then you're going to see some other folks who take a more like cypherpunk approach. Uh, perspective and say, you know, we're going to work on building non-custodial software that is also user-friendly so that we can realize the dream of you being your own bank without you having the nightmare of being your own bank where you have to, you know, basically have armed guards, you know, surrounding your, your house or your castle or whatever. Um, there are technical ways to allow people to be their own bank, in my opinion, that actually make it more secure than what you can get from a traditional bank. But at the moment, it's very difficult to set up a, a, a system like that. And that was Jameson. Uh, and we will have, as Colin mentioned earlier, a full interview with Jameson coming up next week on Blockchain Insider. So look out for that. Um, so whilst we're talking about some of the reputational risks that might be in this space, I think uh, there's there's one app that's infamous for being almost anonymous with everything that's happening in crypto land right now. Uh, and that app is called Telegram. Uh, and so Telegram, uh, there's a story on Business Insider, this, this chat app, apparently Currently, they're going to do an ICO and a fairly large ICO, Colin. Yeah, um, this is this goes in the category of fucking bonkers. Like mm -hmm. uh, Telegram, who is a legitimate VC-funded company from the Silicon Valley that offers something that looks a whole lot like WhatsApp. If you've never heard of WhatsApp, Telegram. but slightly more encrypted. I, I don't think it is actually. No, encrypted. it's just end-to-end -end encryption. That's it. Well, WhatsApp is, but I, I don't know that Telegram is. They just say that it's very safe. We can talk about that on another show it's another time. It's definitely not Signal. It's definitely not Signal. Um, but it is a very widely used thing, and I know a lot of companies are using this. Um, we're going to talk about another story. A lot of people in cryptocurrencies are using this for different reasons because of that security aspect. Um, but they decided, hey, let's go launch an ICO because Kik did it. Why, why can't we do it? Um, but instead of Kik's measly $50 million, we want $2 billion. Cut away to Dr. Evil. $2 billion. Um I don't know why the hell they've done it, but uh, the rumor going around is uh, Silicon VCs are trying to get into this thing that 
weren't involved in the original Telegram funding. Uh, they wanted another pre-sale here. I heard rumors that the actual, you know, $2 billion has been put with Silicon Valley VCs. And if that's true, oh my God, uh, $2 billion before this thing becomes an actual ICO. Um, I know uh, lots of regulators are saying legitimate companies getting ICOs may not be any better, may actually be worse than regular ICOs. Why they need this thing, I have no fucking idea. I think they're sort of saying they want, they know that they're sort of the heart of this community and there's, uh, there's a whole host of uh, new decentralized applications and, and they want to build a bit of a platform for that and have their chat be, be the center of it. I think also you've got a, a, a lot of VCs whose uh, mandates don't allow them to buy into ICOs and, and who feel like they're missing the party, but through an investment in the likes of uh, a company that already exists like Telegram, they feel like they can get some of that access. So I sort of understand the logic, but um, Theresa May, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, um, singled out uh, Telegram and called it a home to criminals and terrorists. So um, I think there's there's sort of reputational risk here is really significant, and uh, not least because um, of the story on BuzzFeed. Um, interesting that the stories on BuzzFeed, as pointed out by producer Laura, um, that Bitcoin quote-unquote scammers are using an app to fleece people was a story on BuzzFeed. And of course, this is about pump and dumps. Colin, um, talk us through this phenomenon. I know we've mentioned it a couple of times on this show, but like, let's just, let's just do a recap and, and then let's think about, I wonder why regulators don't think this is too smart. Yeah, no, I think the first thing I'll say is Theresa May is definitely a risk for uh, for all security and everything in this country. Hey, hey, the Snoopers Charter has been knocked down in court. So let's thank just... you very much, European Union. By yeah. the way, <laughs> uh. um, that will all be gone here next year, won't it? Pump and dump. Um, so what what happens in a pump and dump? Let's let's back back around through that. So. First thing we have is um, groups of people who happen to want to get rich in cryptocurrencies because, hey, that's a new thing to do. You have a lot of people that have figured this out. And so what they what they have traditionally done is set up lots of these groups. And, you know, some of these Telegram groups, Simon and I have been uh, exploring to figure out what the hell is actually going on in them um, because we're curious, not because we're actually trying to participate in a pump and dump. I definitely am not. Um, and I know Simon is not either. So let, let's put that to the side. Um, what they do is they go in and they acquire some some generally uh, illiquid cryptocurrency that uh, hasn't moved much lately. Generally, they stay out of things like Bitcoin because they are very liquid markets. Uh, Ether is probably less um, subject to pump and dump nowadays. Um, it, it may have been in the past. Uh, but what they do is they go in and they buy a big chunk of this and then they start drumming up support. And this is on Twitter. This is in these Telegram groups where they have lots of followers and they tell their followers, buy this thing, it's going to go up. It starts to go up and people go, oh, I'm going to buy more because it is going up. And then people outside of these Telegram groups in a second or third layer start buying it. So the price has gone from very low to kind of high and then it kind of goes straight up like we saw Bitcoin do. Um, and then what happens is when it gets to some point, the first buyers start to sell out they're out, they're in dollars or they're back into Bitcoin or Ether. And then everybody that got in later starts to sell off and this thing crashes down. So it looks a whole lot like the Eiffel Tower if you look at a price chart. Uh, thank you very much, France. A lot of this happens on a regular basis. People know it's happening. They still get in because they think I can get out before everybody else. Uh, some of them make money, but uh, in general, it just moves from one hand to the next. So you can see why regulators are looking at um, the story in Reuters, uniform global curbs on cryptocurrency trading. Um, and, and so the story on Reuters is saying that's actually really hard. So from a Bank of Japan official, uh, look, we, we know we need to curb this. We know it's international. We know that regulation is 
local, but this trading is international and it's 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 really moving to wherever the jurisdictions are, are at their lightest. But we know pump and dump is happening. We're pretty sure money laundering is happening. We're pretty sure people are buying drugs on it, but surely cryptocurrency can't be an index on being an arsehole. Like you, you have to have some legitimate purpose to it. And the idea of being web 3.0 is really, really exciting. Um, just FYI, listeners, Colin's laptop just blew screen a death on him. So um, more for him for running Windows, I guess. <laughs> it's only on the one that has nothing to do with cryptocurrencies except for this show. Okay, duly noted. This is your burner laptop, right? It, it is a ThinkPad after all. All right, so there's a few stories this week along those lines as well. Um, so uh, your laptops. Yeah, there was a one from Coin Center. So I think it was Jerry Brito at Coin Center um, talks about how the SEC and CFTC can address cryptocurrency whilst preserving innovation. Um, and Wall Street Journal says regulators are looking at cryptocurrency. And this comes off the back of us talking last week about uh, the G20 when they meet in March will be discussing uh, regulation for cryptocurrencies. This is now a tier one uh, sort of very top of the house prime minister president level discussion uh, if your president's capable of such a uh, discussion um, so there's uh, probably in some pump and dump groups who known that guy anyway um, <laughs> I think he's I think he's leading one of them today <laughs> so there's there's definitely uh, this wave of regulations coming regulators going to regulate but I think there's an opportunity um, when not quoting Warren G to think about what, how do we do this sensibly? Um, as, again, as, as uh, Yuzo Kano said last week, unless you're being a part of helping shape that regulation, then what will be brought in might be quite negative. And I know there's been a lot of good work by uh, the like the folks at Coin Center. Um, there's folks in Crypto Valley. There's uh, William Moyagar, I know, who's been doing a lot of work. The folks at Clause.io and many others that I'm not naming. But how do you bring all of those people together globally? And how do you start to speak with one voice as an industry and say, look, there's a legitimate industry here of OTC desks trading this stuff. There are legitimate businesses trying to do KYC AML properly that are sharing this information with law enforcement, but also allowing people to invest in this space and potentially be part of the growth of what could be, might not be, but could be a new generation of the internet. So if we've got all of those things that could be good, We've got to figure out how this community comes together and uh, kind of starts to shed light on the parts that need to shed light and, and kind of uh, pushes away the darker parts like pump and dump and like money laundering. But can I take a more cynical view on this? Like, I, I like the fact that regulators are coming in and they're trying to look at this, but there are a lot of markets out there that are quote unquote regulated and have been for a long time. Um, there's still a lot of market manipulation that happens in FX. There's still a lot of market manipulation that happens in equities. Penny stocks are massive. Uh, we we see bonds. We we had governments uh, banning shorting bonds. We have people talking about governments supporting FX and that being illegal to the point where literally presidents are talking about uh, interrupting free trade. Why should cryptocurrency be any different? And if anything, and here's my very cynical part, isn't that a good thing? Because you don't have people in there um, using an untaxed money coming out of Russia because they're an oligarch on a blacklist buying London property and driving up the value. Here, they're just moving up and down this stupid cryptocurrency thing. So, I mean, 
let him go for it. Let him pump and dump the price. It keeps him away from anything that we actually need to use as utility. Maybe that's the case, but regulation's coming regardless. So why wouldn't you try and get ahead of that? So if, if you can see that the regulation is coming, if you can see that uh, there is a view that this space is an index on uh, money laundering, if, if Telegram is seen uh, by prime ministers of, of countries as being uh, used by ISIS and terrorists, they're squarely putting this in their sight. And I don't think any of those things are true. I don't think you should ban cryptocurrencies. I think there's a lot of good things that could be developed that could deliver real world value. So I guess it comes down to the thesis. Do you believe this is a way to speculate and make money? Or do you believe that there is a there is a end value there? Do you think there's a there's there's something to the core ideas of decentralization, new governance models, new business models? Do you think that there's some value in it? Because if you do, then maybe we should move it towards the light. And if you don't, then maybe it's just anarchy for anarchy's sake, which I know a lot of uh, the some a lot of this community does support anarchy for anarchy's sake and just to, to hell with it all let the world just burn. But actually, I don't know that that's what the overwhelming majority in the community want. And I don't know that that's what the mass market wants. And I don't know that that's the most successful strategy. So if that's not the most successful strategy, what is and how do we get there? And I absolutely agree with all of that. And the, the reflection I would just put is, can, can it not be both things? Can it not be anarchy for anarchy's sake today and at some point be legitimate and bringing new value that can be created? Um, Bitcoin's still an experiment. Ether, Ethereum is still an experiment. All of these other ones are still an experiment. And though they're worth billions of dollars now, billions of dollars, they're experiments. And they could all blow up in our face tomorrow. They're overpriced experiments, I wouldn't disagree. But to get from uh, where it has been to where it's going to be, it's going to take work. And I think it's going to take a community of people who want that work. Because otherwise, we get things like this story in American Banker, where Arise Bank, if anybody remembers Arise Chicken, um, Arise Bank claims it has $600 million uh, in an ICO, and they had FDIC insurance. Um, but they didn't from what um, American Banker is alleging. So um, do you know anything about this one, Colin? Uh, all I can say before we get into this is don't mess with Texas. Uh, this is the second time after BitConnect that uh, thank God the Texas regulators were looking into these things. Um, so apparently the FBI and, and the state of Texas and the SEC have actually gone into this firm. So there was in early January, early this month, um, there was, well, I guess last month when you're listening to this, um, there were letters sent by lawyers from all of these regulators to Arise Bank, which was this ICO that reportedly raised a ton of money, um, claiming to be a bank, but not really a bank. And they said, cease and desist. Um, legitimate thing. Uh, it's interesting to see that they had gone forward. They claim to have, as you said, FDIC or federal deposit in insurance. Um, what this means is if they failed, the government would back them up. Uh, this exists in a lot of different countries. Um, obviously, if you have that, that um, brand on top of you, uh, that is something that is very strong in the eyes of the consumer, especially in the US. The regulators came out and said, well, that isn't actually the case. And by the way, if you're doing these things, you need to be regulated in the state of Texas. So stop. They, they returned a letter and said, basically, go fuck yourself. Uh, we don't exist here. We're a decentralized network and blah, 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 blah. Stephen Pally, as you can imagine, had lots of choice words for them, as he always does. And it was quite hilarious. So follow him if you're not doing that and you're interested in regulators. Um, what they decided to do in, in traditional Texas style is uh, rock up with a bunch of guns and say, hey, this is your headquarters. So go fuck yourselves with decentralization and your peer-to-peer -peer network. We know where your headquarters is. Um, and they seized a bunch of their assets and papers. So here's the thing. Because guns 
does tend to win um, because rules, because tanks, because armies. And I think the nation state still has that on the side. And and there's this idea that we can transition to a new governance model and a new way of organizing humanity, which I love and I think is is just fantastic uh, conceptually. But it's so juvenile in how it's expressed and it's and it's not compatible with the old world in any way shape or form uh, there's there's there was definitely an overlap period between the horse and the car and the people who owned cars didn't go around like shooting everybody that owned a horse like if you're acting like enough of an idiot you tend to give yourself a bad reputation and i think um this community does tend to uh, draw idiots like no other and and I think there's another lesson inside of this is like when we're talking about decentralized technology, um, there's a reason why decentralized technology might be worthwhile. And Bitcoin, uh, one of the really interesting things behind Bitcoin that they figured out was before Bitcoin, there was something called Liberty Reserve. And what this was, was it looked a whole lot like Bitcoin, um, but there was a pile of gold sitting someplace or dollars sitting someplace. And the government decided they didn't want to deal with all this non-KYC money moving around in, in dollars and gold. So why don't we just go down to Panama, figure out where this stuff is and seize it? And it disappeared overnight. Um, Bitcoin is famously backed by nothing, and that's why it's worth something, which is quite interesting. Here, these guys are saying, look, we're a peer-to-peer network. You can't erase us. You can't touch us. We don't care what your, your regulators say. We're everywhere and nowhere, and that's unstoppable. But it's very easy to go into the people saying this and say, we know where your office is. You're, ra- you're something that we can identify, and if we shoot you in the head, the whole thing falls apart. So you are not the Kraken. There was somebody who had their Bitcoin stolen, I think, at knife point or gunpoint earlier this week in the UK. And I think that's that's when all of these highfalutin ideas around security and decentralization fall apart. And pretty much every time somebody makes the argument, hey, we're decentralized, we're above any of your stupid rules, that's like a surefire sign that they're idiots and it's all going to fall apart. Um, it happened with the Dow, and it will happen many times. It's happened here with the Rise Bank, and it will happen many times more. Tezos is another great example of exactly that it's uh i love the idea of building new governance models but you you've got to do the hard yards you've got to do the homework on it you can't just say because decentralized um last story we're going to cover in any depth this week is uh from bloomberg business week uh ripple wants xrp to be the bitcoin for banks if only any of the banks actually wanted it. So there's a story here which is, uh, I think, pretty well researched by Bloomberg, where they've gone out and spoken to a number of bankers, by, and it's by Matthew Lessig and Edward Robinson, both of whom have been covering the fintech sector for a, for a number of years. Uh, and they say every day can, companies and consumers send more than $76 billion of payments through the vast network of banks, and the uh, kind of Ripple guys have built what they call the Internet of Value, you, but it just seems like uh, everybody's using a version of the technology, but not using XRP. And uh, we, we talked about this on the last few episodes. Um, uh, we briefly mentioned it on episode 30, but uh, especially if you get into uh, episodes 28 and 29, I think it was 29 where we had uh, Ryan Selkis talk us through this in quite some depth. So uh, it should be, uh, should be a good one to go back and listen to if you're not cl- clued up on all things Ripple. Colin, uh, do you think there's been any more developments on this uh, since we last touched the story? Uh, I would like to see what the state of Texas has to say. <laughs> I'm sure the state of Texas has a lot to say. All right. Uh, stories we didn't have much time to cover. Uh, story in CryptoVest. Oh, please, can we, can we just hit on this one? All right. Let me read the title and then you can hit it. Do you want to read the title? Go ahead. This is all yours. Prodium ICO exit with a prank, no real haul. 
Um, so this was an ICO that um, was very questionable when they were raising it. They wanted to put fruit and vegetables on a blockchain, whatever the fuck that means. Um, because why not put fruit and vegetables on that? Because everybody's raising stupid amounts of money. Uh, the great thing is one day they just disappeared and their website said nothing more than the word penis. <laughs> and they were nowhere to be seen after that date. <laughs> you know, this goes back to the thing we've been talking about with ICOs. There's a lot of shit out there, and there's a lot of people raising money for very rightly called shit coins. Um, if you're thinking about investing in an ICO, be it from Telegram or Prodium or BitConnect or whatever the hell you're looking at, um, really consider the risks that you're, you're getting yourself involved into because a lot of them will end up doing these, you know, I'll take a bit of money and I'll run away. I, I think some people have, have seen so much growth that they don't mind this happening occasionally in their pop portfolio, which is quite sad because a lot of people could really lose out uh, f from that being the case. And the only protection we've had against this historically has been to know uh, who the people raising this are and, and that they would create a prospectus and that prospectus would be reviewed uh, and that we would also know who the investors are and we would know everybody else involved. Now, if from a privacy perspective, we don't like that, then maybe we need to find alternatives to just knowing who everybody is, this, this KYC thing that some people object to. But anyways, um, story and venture be how blockchain could kill both cable and netflix that's a heck of a headline and i think what they're talking really is it's the old fat protocols idea um story in finextra where open door have secured 10 million dollars in funding uh, and one from product hunt the golden kitty awards winners colin any any golden kitties you want to point out here well, you happen to have a golden kitty, and I'm sure you would be happy to sell your golden kitty for an extreme profit. <laughs> the immutable Marco is sitting kindly in a wallet somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> a very, very cold, icy cold wallet, I hope. The, the great thing in this story, though, was the quote from Elon Musk. Um, where he says, you know, the whole thing about the flamethrowers this week, signing for like $500 each to, I think he raised $5 million, didn't he? Yeah. It, it wasn't was an ICO, but nearly. Um, he had a tweet in here that's mentioned in this article says, but wait, there's something more. The flamethrower is sentient. It's safe word is cryptocurrency and it comes with a free blockchain. So sign up, spend your 500 bucks, free blockchains, everyone. I wondered how Elon kept ending on those lists. You know where people have lists of like the top blockchain influencers or the top fintech influencers? And I saw you on one of them this morning. Ugh, don't. <laughs> Um, and so how do you, how does Elon end up on them? It turns out he just trolls the whole world with, with, uh, with the boring company. I'm all for it. All right, listeners, uh, don't forget, you can let us know what you think about any of these stories we've covered or Speaking any of the of stories. Trolling. <laughs> that's what you're doing right now. <laughs> or any stories that we haven't covered, get in touch at Chain Insider uh, or troll Colin G. Platt directly um, or at S.Y. Taylor if you want to troll me. Uh, otherwise, you can drop us an email, podcasts at 11fs.com. All right, next up, I spoke to uh, Malcolm LeRider from Neo. Great. So I am here with Malcolm LeRider. Is that how I say your name? Correct. Hey, Malcolm from Neo. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here today. No, no. Really excited to have you. Neo, um, to those that haven't heard of it, I think is a super exciting project. But why don't you tell me in your own words, what is Neo? Well, Neo is, uh, we aim to build what we call a smart economy. So what we want to do is to actually link the real world assets to digital assets. By real world assets, you mean houses, you mean gold, you mean stocks and shares, you mean all those sorts of things. Anything, anything, yes. And uh, that can be a little bit difficult for some people to understand. But if you understand what, for example, Ethereum does with smart contracts, that's basically what Neo can do as well. 
but more technology on top of that. So for those of us that understand Bitcoin, Ripple, uh, Ethereum, Litecoin, what are the key differences um, in NEO's approach? What, what are the key design choices? So NEO itself, it's not really a currency and, and it's not meant to be used as a currency. It's, uh, it's a governance token for the blockchain itself. So on top of NEO, you can build all these kind of applications which will be decentralized applications. And uh, you can do that also with other platforms. But I think the main difference for us is that we want to build a platform that's actually accessible to the, to the main audience to, to reach mass adoption. So many other projects, they want to build a blockchain to avoid regulation. Mm. They want to avoid to have a central authority in control. And we at NEO, we of course also see this as an advantage but on the other hand, we, we see the blockchain technology and public ledgers as something that has to work together with the current economy. So we want to build a platform that, uh, that works and can adhere to regulations and not only avoiding them. Interesting perspective. So let's wind the clock back and talk to me about the beginning of NEO. How did it start? Who started it? It started in 2014 by the founders uh, Da Hongfei and uh, Eric. And back then it was called Antshares. So that's a quite in- interesting name and it didn't really catch along by the, the Western audience. And uh, they, they continued to build on it to get it as, as a mature project. And while they were doing that, they also realized that there were two kind of requirements among uh, businesses. So there are many businesses who actually want to have a public blockchain to deploy smart contracts on. And uh, there are also businesses who want to use blockchain technology, but they want to use it internally. They They want to have a blockchain for their own businesses, which is not open to the public. So they also founded a private company called OnChain. So together with OnChain, NEO serves an ecosystem. So NEO is the public blockchain where anyone can register assets. Anyone can release tokens, for example, the ICOs. Anyone can do that on top of NEO. And OnChain, they develop platforms for private companies so that they can have the platforms uh, internally. Interesting. You've got this public blockchain where anybody can issue an asset they own right. onto the NEO blockchain right. by creating a smart contract that represents that asset. And then you have the company on-chain that does the almost technology consulting and build for the NEO technology stack, but for private enterprises in a VPN-like arrangement. Yes, more or less. And then we also have this cross-chain protocol which makes it possible for private enterprises who has their private blockchain to actually communicate with NEO as their public blockchain. So what we're building is not only one blockchain platform, but we're actually building a whole ecosystem to be able to support our vision of a smart economy. So you see a hub and spokes model where there's almost like a spine, a central permissionless open uh, blockchain, or well, I guess you say permissionless, but compatible with regulation to a certain degree, compatible with centralized governance. But then these private ones and a way to communicate between the two, you've thought that through from, from the start. Right, correct. So talk to me about uh, obvious things, consensus algorithm, data structures. Um, what, what, is, what are the actual architectural choices that, that I should be aware of within NEO? So NEO uses a quite special 
consensus algorithm, which was actually invented by Eric, one of the founders of, uh, of NEO. And it's called Delegated Byzantine Fault Tolerance, which is a long word. <laughs> yeah. um, so the difference is when you have uh, proof of work and proof of stake, which most blockchain enthusiasts are familiar with, is that you will have in proof of work, you will have some sort of competition to create the next block. In uh, proof of stake, you will have a participant staking on which block they, sh they believe should be the next block by a certain probability. And uh, this system both creates uh, branches. So uh, almost like different versions of the, of, the of the same chain. It effectively creates competition then for which one it becomes the longest chain and that, that becomes the one that ultimately wins out and there's an economic incentive for Correct. the winner of the longest chain. Correct. So when you have this longest chain system, you have to wait for a certain amount of confirmation before the transaction is actually considered to be completed. Mm. And NEO algorithm always only have uh, one chain. There's no branches. So what you, what you get in NEO is that after every single confirmation, that transaction is 100% already in the blockchain. But can anybody do the validation? Can anybody be a miner? What are, what are the incentive structures look like? In NEO, we have something that we call consensus node. So not everyone can become a consensus node. Well, everybody can become a consensus node. But in the end, those who are holding the NEO token will vote for who they believe should be the consensus node. So there's an element of uh, democratic voting, but holding the t so holding this token represents the value of being able to vote on who those consensus nodes are. Right, yes. So your incentive for having the token is the ability to make those votes on, on who those nodes are. Right, so there are two tokens actually. So the, the NEO token is, one part of it is to vote on who to become consensus node. And NEO token will also generate uh, NEO gas. Mm -hmm. So you have the NEO gas, which is the utility token. If you're paying transaction fees or if you're registering assets on top of the NEO blockchain, you would need the NEO gas. And that pays for your compute in a, in a decentralized manner. So a, a bit like um, gas in, in the Ethereum network. It's, it's paying more for the compute rather than for the ability to vote and, and right. securing the network. So then also everything that is spent on, uh, on the NEO blockchain, you will spend gas, for example, to deploy a smart contract. Mm -hmm. All that gas is also uh, recycled. So it's put in a pool to be oh, redistributed to all the NEO again. So there will be this circulation of gas. So gas is never destroyed. It's always recycled and distributed again to the NEO tokens. So the smart contracts themselves, do they execute everywhere like they do in Ethereum so that um, they're everyone executes all of the contracts and you kind of have to wait for the eventual consistency within the compute layer as well. Yes, but the, the, the advantage is that we, since we have this uh, consensus algorithm, we will have much less consensus nodes compared to uh, other systems. So other systems with uh, thousands of nodes uh, compared to, to our system, which will have tens or maybe 20 a very small number of consensus nodes. So, in effect, yes, every, all of the nodes are executing, but there are way less nodes, so you've gained efficiency in that sense. So you're not looking for scaling by going off-chain. You're not looking for scaling. The, the examples of, like, uh, Raiden from, from Ethereum or from all the, all some of the sharding stuff they're trying to do, it's just we have way less consensus nodes and buy some tokens if you want to vote on who those consensus nodes are. Well, the beauty is that uh, with our consensus algorithm, we already can reach a few thousand transactions per second as is on, on, on the main chain. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
that's not the limitation itself, the, the techniques you are talking about with state channels and sharding and so on. They can, they're just technologies that can be applied to any blockchain. Mm. So if, if we would need more transactions than a few thousand transactions per second, then you can apply these technologies on top of NEO as well. Mm -hmm. And it will scale even more because you can see the transactions on the main chain as the multiplier. So if, if the main chain does 50 transactions per second and you do state channels, then you have the 50 transactions as the multiplier. While on the NEO chain, you will have these a few thousand transactions as the multiplier. Interesting. So where do you stand on um, technologies or, or approaches like uh, IOTA with direct-tilled acyclic graph stacks? Uh, they have a different approach and that may suit uh, smaller devices, um, lower-powered devices. Does NEO see itself as competitive or compatible one day with, with different chains? It can very much be compatible. And uh, many of the use cases that you see other blockchain want to achieve can also be achieved on top of NEO. Mm -hmm. We had, for example, last year there was a competition held by a community group and we had uh, the winning competition number one was actually doing an Internet of Things implementation on top of NEO. So who are your uh, biggest users and customers right now, if, if I were to say on, on both sides of the organization? So you've got the on-chain, like private side. Is there anybody that's notable that you could speak about that, that, that works with that today? And, and on the public chain, who are some of the key projects that you find interesting? So two-part question. There are a lot of public projects on top of NEO right now. I could mention a few of them, but at the same time, I don't really want to make... Uh, favorize any of them we have with us to, for example they're all amazing everyone all amazing but on this tour we have uh, we're doing this meetup tour mm -hmm. so on this tour we have uh, deep brain cpin qlink who am i missing red pulse is with us yeah. uh Wawa is, is with us qrc is with us and so these are projects that are trying to build on top of NEO to do new types of products and services on an on a open permissionless blockchain um, that is available in, in, in the public domain, but is considered more efficient because it has less nodes. So talk to me, you mentioned there you're on a bit of a tour. Uh, what is this tour you're on? Is, is, there a, is there a band bus? Are you traveling a lot? Oh, really. <laughs> well, since, well, we have done a lot of meetups in, um, in Asia. So in China and Japan and Singapore and Korea. And there's also a lot of interest in NEO here in Europe. So we noticed last year, end of last year, that there were a lot of independent, the community started to organize meetups over here. So we took the opportunity now in January to actually organize, take some projects with us to actually join in these community arranged meetups over here in Europe. Fantastic. Which is very, very interesting. And so you have, um, I think regular listeners will know, your DevCon 1 coming up uh, on the 30th and the 31st at the Intercontinental Hotel in, in San Francisco. What are your hopes and goals for having that session in San Francisco and, and what are you looking forward to at that session? Well, NEO has always been about the development community. So our development community is, uh, is really big and the development um, community in San Francisco is also very big. So what we would like to do is to reach out to more developers to actually well, take a look at NEO, try it out and see what they think is good, what they think is bad, what can be improved and have these uh, 
well, two-way communication directly with uh, with developers. So if I'm assuming all the code is open source so people can go view it for themselves. I've observed, and I'm, I may be biased or, or wrong in this, but so please do call me if you think I am, but uh, so-called Western companies have struggled to really break into China and so-called Chinese companies have really struggled to break into the West. Some exceptions, I think in Europe, uh, Huawei have done really well on the corporate side and a number of other companies have started to, to, to really uh, cr- kind of cross that gap. Do, are you concerned about... Uh, people having the wrong perception of Neo because of its uh, of its geographic beginnings? I think both yes and no. I think Neo is now in, in, in a very good position since we started out in China and it's now a very global global community and a global project. So for, uh, for Neo projects, it's quite easy to, for example, Chinese Neo projects, it's easy for them to reach out to the global community mm-hmm. and, uh, and the other way around. And uh, I know also there was a lot of confusion at the end of last year about uh, Neo being a Chinese project and, and what's the what's the risk of it being a Chinese project, which was also it's a bit difficult to understand for for us that are actually working at Neo because from our perspective there's really nothing. No risk at all. Talk to me about what you think your challenges are in the next 12 months and your goals. What do you think's the biggest challenge facing Neo? And what do you think, what are your goals? Where would you want to be if we were talking in a year's time? The biggest challenge right now is actually the speed that we are growing, both, both community-wise and, uh, and the team-wise. We moved into our office in Shanghai in August. And just right now, before I went to Europe, we, we moved into a new office again <laughs> because there are too many t- team members. And the community is growing even faster. So then uh, to organize the development that is happening in, in the growing Shanghai team and the growing community, both in China and in, in all over the world, is uh, it's a challenge, of course, I think. And we get a lot of help also from from the community to organize it. Uh, we're using Discord now to be able mm-hmm. to uh, better organize the, the projects and the different programming languages that people need help with. And with goals, I'd like to leave that open because that's also a quite uh, interesting topic for the DevCon. So it's already on the agenda for the DevCon on the 30th. So you're throwing that to the community. What should our goals be? Uh, not really. No. <laughs> Partly yes, because it's an open source project, so the, so, the, so the community can actually influence the goals quite a lot. But also there's some going to get announced, I suspect. So uh, keep your eye on DevCon on the 30th and 31st. Uh, thank you very much for being with us on Blockchain Insider. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, thank you very much, Malcolm. And next, I had the good fortune of speaking uh, with Adam Ludwin, the CEO of Chain.com. So I am here with the wonderful Adam Ludwin from Chain.com. Adam, how are you, sir? Doing well. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for being here. So for those who are unfamiliar, um, could you tell me like uh, just a really brief uh, version of how you got into this space and uh, what your company Chain.com does? Sure. So I was uh, investing in fintech as a venture capitalist uh, in New York uh, in 2010, 2011, and uh, and fintech, of course, pre Bitcoin, pre cryptocurrency, pre blockchain, was very different. Still is, uh, and I would characterize that difference as uh, we were investing in startups that sat on top of the traditional stack. 
of uh, banks and car networks and payment networks uh, and products that basically were like new interfaces to the old rails. So companies like Venmo are a good example of that. Uh, Square, uh, Lending Club, right? So making it easier for consumers and businesses to access traditional services using modern technology. That's sort of what fintech meant. And somebody sent me the Bitcoin white paper, a good friend of mine, uh, and it blew me away because it was literally the inverse of that. It was the it wasn't even the bottom of the stack. It was sort of saying, here's a big reset button. Let's just build a new stack. We already have the internet. What's the least amount we can add to it to get to money and payments? And the answer was, you know, a couple thousand lines of code instead of, you know, several thousand institutions. And that was, like I said, striking, compelling, uh, piqued my curiosity to say the least. But it also, I also started to realize that there was going to be a very long arc to this innovation, that it wasn't going to transform overnight. Um, and the deeper I went and the more uh, entrepreneurs uh, and engineers I met that were interested in the space, the more I arrived at my own personal conviction that I needed to spend my career on this. This was going to be an area that I wanted to really bet on personally. Uh, and... Um, uh, the firm I was with, RRE Ventures, um, they were good enough to sort of help get us started with with seed capital. Um, later, we raised more money from uh, Coastal Ventures uh, from a partner there named Keith, who uh, was one of the PayPal mafia and is on the board of Stripe and sort of very well known around fintech. And that really got us off to the races. Uh, and by we, I mean a team that uh, we assembled and I assembled uh, out in San Francisco. There's a lot more uh, engineering talent and um, uh, is sort of the right place to you know build a technology startup. Uh, today, uh, you know, five years later, we've raised you know about forty four million dollars in capital, and we're best known for our work with uh, large financial uh, companies like Visa, Nasdaq, Citigroup, State Street, uh, and that strikes a lot of people as surprising. Sometimes, you know, how do you go from uh, you know, like I said, the reset button on the existing stack to working with financial institutions on this technology. And uh, it comes back to what I said earlier that there's really a long arc to this. And uh, no matter what, financial institutions uh, will have to be participants along the way. And so a lot of where we are innovating is not just uh, on the software development side and trying to fit and adapt blockchain technologies to be uh, 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 helpful and, and sort of create utility for consumers, for businesses, but also to figure out how do we tie this new technology into uh, existing financial infrastructure in a way that it, it can work. Uh, because no matter what you do, you're going to uh, have to uh, connect into financial infrastructure at the edges somewhere. Even cryptocurrency exchanges, for example, uh, have to tie into banks to allow people to convert in and out of different currencies. So um, happy to speak more about what we do, but that's that's at a high level. Uh, 
a bit of an introduction. So tell me what you've learned over the last three or four years of this journey, because I remember uh, December 2014, um, one of your chaps came over to work with uh, myself when I was at Barclays and look at you know, what were the oceans of possibilities, what does a decentralized bank look like? There's definitely that sort of new thinking that's going on. I think as I look at the market, I see people who focused on DLT and doing like the VPN version of blockchain. And then there's uh, the kind of the crypto assets market, which is decentralized all the things. Do you see, how, how do you see the last couple of years and, and where do you think we're moving to? Yeah, I, I, act, I, I think um, there is less difference between uh, the so-called private DLT permissioned uh, technologies and the open public ones than people think. Interesting. Why is that? Because decentralization, that term, uh, means different things at different levels of the stack. I mean, if you look at, for example, a project like Ripple, there's a lot of debate right now about do they really deserve the market cap around XRP because it's not decentralized, quote unquote. Uh, what does that mean? And 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 that debate is I think a really interesting one um, because you can have a decentralized consensus model, which they do have. Uh, you can have a decentralized issuance of the digital asset, which arguably they don't. You could have a decentralized management of keys, uh, which it depends if they do or don't. Um, you can have decentralized data replication. Uh, and so if you look at something like Ripple, which is a so-called kind of uh, corporate or, or uh, DLT company, there are many aspects that are actually very decentralized versus you look at a company like Coinbase, uh, which is sort of a, a key player in the cryptocurrency market, which is generally characterized as that market is generally characterized as, you know, the decentralized kind of ethos as this primary motivator. And Coinbase, of course, is completely centralized. It's an app, right? It, it manages it manages private keys for users. There's, there's, it's not involved in consensus. It's not, of course, it's an exchange and that's how it should be. So it's not a criticism of Coinbase, which is a remarkable company. But it's, my point is, I think you asked, what have I learned? I think what I've learned is there's a lot more nuance and there's a lot more continuum around what is decentralized and what is centralized. And I think uh, what is missed when people just affix a label to something is what is the goal? What are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to, for example, uh, make payments frictionless? Okay, let's go make payments frictionless and figure out the right assemblage of tools and companies to do that. Are we trying to create censorship-resistant file storage? Okay, what thing? What tools do we need to pull out of the bag to do that? So we have now in 2017, sorry, 2018, uh, all of these different tools that we can draw upon and where we need more focus as an industry is, is around what are we trying to achieve 
and then go bring those tools to bear and the right mix of centralized, decentralized or something in between. Interesting um, word you use there, continuum. Uh, So I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Brown, who's now actually the CTO over at R3. And uh, one of his uh, initial blog posts on gendal.me was really around this continuum idea of centralized versus decentralized. And the idea of banking is considered quite centralized, but actually there are uh, over 11,000 SWIFT member banks, all of which are hub and spokes kind of model. Uh, and then, so is banking centralized? Uh, well, okay, so there's double entry bookkeeping and, the, and there's all of that sort of model. And then is Bitcoin decentralized if there are 11, 9 to 11 mining conglomerates that really do, do most of the mining? Uh, and, and, so, and, there are, and these debates become almost religious rather than technical. And, and the, pro, the thing you said is what problem can we solve um and the one i keep coming back to is either the governance one where we we couldn't solve a business problem before because there wasn't one centralized body for all of trade in all of the world or for all of uh, whatever industry it is in all of the world it was hard to centralize some things and the other one is uh, around resilience and cybersecurity. so you mentioned filecoin do you do you see some themes coming in terms of what those problems are um and and what would you say your, your top two or three problems that people are solving with the, with the broader quote-unquote tech stack of blockchain, DLT, whatever you want to call it, are? So I'll, I'll, I'll mention two. The first is still staring us in the face, and it's sort of almost cliche to talk about it now because we've been talking about it for so long. But payments and basic asset transfer is still far too expensive, and there's still far too much friction, especially in the international sphere, than there needs to be. Uh, uh, and again, this is this is the same narrative that people have been talking about for five, six years, but it's still true. Uh, and so I think one of the central breakthroughs that we're likely to see over the next couple of years is genuinely frictionless and low cost international payments, international asset transfer, um, and making value movement feel like any other form of data movement and i i where's that going to come from is that going to come from the mixture of people who are doing icos with uh, a payment coin is it going to come from the sort of you know where on the continuum is it, is it going to be a mixture of points on the continuum playing together is there going to be one winner how, how are you seeing that evolving and what's what's your perspective so my my thesis on that is will be driven by so-called incumbent technology companies, which is a bit of a controversial thing to say to a, any audience interested in this topic, because I, I did not say the banks and I did not say the startups, right? So I'm the sort of these, the, the companies everyone is trying to disrupt and reason about the Facebooks, the Googles, the Alipays, et cetera. But I, I think um, what, what I've learned is that the financial institutions uh, will play a key role as participants. I think that's very likely. Uh, but I, it's it's hard to believe they're going to be the tip of the innovation spear. Um, at the same time, to really affect change, you're going to need scale. Uh, and startups, ICOs or otherwise, by definition, most of them don't get scale. Some of them will. Most of them won't. Uh, and unfortunately, on the ICO side, most of them are over-optimizing over for you know, market cap of a currency and not really trying to solve problems, at least not right now. Whereas if you look at a product like WhatsApp, or you look at 
the efforts of the Chinese internet companies to go global, uh, mostly in Asia, Southeast Asia, into India, but increasingly into the so-called West. I think it's there where when you talk to the executives who are building those networks, they have real problems transacting in markets outside their home country. And as sort of you have more demand from people spending money outside their home countries, either because they're traveling or they're they're moving or they're migrating or whatever the case may be. I think that's where there's the highest potential. I think that 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 money movement and that that sort of strategy of of partnering with technology companies uh, for us is really interesting. And then your other question, which is what is the other? I said there were there's sort of two examples I think are interesting. The, the other one is you know I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, the, the predominant open and decentralized cryptocurrency networks. I think they're critically important and uh, valuable just to have as part of the fabric of civil society. Um, meaning we don't need to get overly fixated on like what, how are they being used for payments right now? Um, are they a store of value or not? Like is Ethereum better than the cloud or not? Um, I have strong views on what they're good for and what they're not good for. But I think just like encryption technologies, right? Being able to send, when you reached out to me, you sent me an encrypted email. Um, I think, uh, just like encryption technologies are valuable tools for civil society, for, for it's good for society to have them as options and not have to rely on uh, traditional services. I think that is in and of itself justifies high valuations on, on these networks, not all of them, uh, but certainly on some of the leading ones. The fact that I can run code and know that as long as I pay the, the, the ether and the gas, I'm going to get a result. Um, there's something important about having that as sort of a backstop uh, in, in the type of world we live in. Almost those two ideas you just put out there of, the, of large tech being the driver of payments change uh, at scale versus this decentralized common good, th those ideas are almost opposed in a certain way. But as, as you drill underneath the, the payments issue of a large tech company, do they want to be regulated? I don't think they do. Um, do they want to take balance sheet risk and become a bank? Absolutely not. Um, and so uh, something that is more decentralized would naturally would naturally appeal to them. Um, but and this is and this is where they th these things blend, because, uh, you know, for example, when you said, the, you know, like, a, a technology-driven payments initiative is at odds or sort of very different than having a decentralized uh, currency or asset that society can use, uh, you know, regardless of where they live and, you know, what they have access to. But yes, they're different, but it's not hard to see how these things can also come together. Again, if you look at the example of messaging, who would have thought that WhatsApp would have become end-to-end -end encrypted, you know, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the only people using encryption technologies were spies, hackers, and paranoids. Uh, you know, post-Edward Snowden, post-Trump, uh, post a lot of sort of diff sort of changes that change perspective and change how society is working right now. People are adopting encryption or want encryption end-to-end. -end. And so uh, I think we need to be open-minded again about there are a lot of different approaches and tools, and they're going to combine and mix, I think, in ways that are unexpected. And that's what's so exciting about working in the space. 
I think there's, there's also a couple of perspectives on uh, encryption and privacy um, versus uh, if I'm a large organization versus if I'm an individual. If I'm an individual, I'd like my conversation to have some element of privacy. I, I'd like to have some element of freedom. And there are different perspectives on what that means for the, the 900 million WhatsApp users versus the N number of Signal or Telegram users. So there's different views on that as would approach from the consumer side. But on the enterprise side, I look at Equifax, I look at Target, I look at Sony. There's, there's a big issue with having all of your, you mentioned um, sort of decentralized file storage earlier. There's a big issue with having all of your data in a data center with our governance body that manages it. There being an alternative to that is is an interesting area of exploration, even if it's not complete, um, and even if it's not guaranteed to be better today. I think that's right. And one of the most compelling new realities that we have is there are alternatives now uh, that didn't exist for payments, for file storage, for identity. Uh, and just the fact that there is an alternative uh, I think creates a competitive dynamic and innovation dynamic from incumbents that they can't sit idly by. Which is interesting because the uh, historic thing for a large institution was how do I get into the cloud? And now we're already starting to think about how, how does that change in terms of um, multi-cloud? And now we're going beyond that into actually can I have a single administrator or do I need to, to decentralize those permissions? And you mentioned Coinbase earlier being arguably somewhat centralized, albeit they have a ridiculous amount of customers trying to bang down their door to sign up at the moment. Um, they, they they do have that centralization risk. Um, and, and from that, we see the beginnings of decentralized exchanges now starting to gain traction in recent weeks and, um, and really grow. So, uh, as this, this kind of grand experiment plays out, do you see there being risks to consumers um, as it's still so early and experimental? Or, or do you see that some of this can be used here and now? Like, w w what's your perspective on that? There are definite risks to consumers right now, uh, especially around the trading of crypto assets. Arguably the most volatile asset class ever because it remains unregulated and I think will continue to be for a while just because it's global and you're not going to see a global unified regulatory framework anytime soon. Um, that it, it's so alluring to place bets on these things and it's gone so well for now over a year when you have placed those bets uh, that the temptation for folks to mortgage their house, take a loan and keep kind of increasing the stakes is is genuinely risky just from a financial loss perspective. Beyond that, I think the real promise of uh, applying cryptography and financial services uh, is sort of this two-part promise of both efficiency and security. So in the long run, I think this is a, a boon to financial uh, protection, security, efficiency, the consumer for businesses. In the short run and along the way, there's certainly going to be some volatility and some risk. So how do you feel about that narrative that I, I think became a meme in like 2014-15 that Jimmy Diamond's still sort of uh, trotting out, which is the, um, I, I don't like the currency, but I like the technology. Do you think that misses nuance or, or, or is he kind of uh, on to something from the consumer risk side? It does miss important nuance. You know, our company chain 
is a you know so-called blockchain company. Um, but you'll never hear from us a statement like blockchain is great, but you know Bitcoin doesn't make sense or something like that. Of course, these ideas, uh, the notion of a sort of batch depend only ledger is deeply integrated with a concept of a digital asset that allows for a, a decentralized consensus on the order of that set of transactions. Like that's the original concept sort of baked into Bitcoin and in the projects pre-Bitcoin, but that, that was sort of like the core idea. Um, now, from our perspective, you can start to tease apart different pieces of that, uh, like I said earlier, on a continuum to say, where do we need a digital asset and where don't we? Uh, in other words, you can use cryptography uh, in a more centralized context to make a ledger have more integrity with digital signatures. Uh, and and where you have need for a different trust model, you can use an asset uh, as a settlement token or as a, uh, a as an incentive for uh, a consensus network. So again, I think it just there is a lot of nuance, um, but it's it's certainly not as black and white as that. Where do we see that moving to? Um, are we going to see uh, people starting to? have the Prius Tesla type dichotomy where you've got the efficiency from using bits of it and you've got the, hey, I can just build a new market by having things that are born digital, that are natively digital, that allow me to do a new thing I couldn't do before versus digitized, which is, hey, this asset always existed and I'm using some of these techs. Is, is that something you see happening or is it one or the other? Is it just actually these these crypto assets tend to go away and they're, they're a flash in the pan or vice versa, crypto assets eventually overtake the old world of financial services? I uh, have said before that I don't think crypto assets ever go away. I think they're here to stay. I think they have an important contribution to part of the overall economy and part of the overall way financial services will function. I also don't think banks go away. Um, I think uh, they'll change dramatically, as you know better than, than I, given what you do for day to day. I think they have to change. I think they um, will change. And I think a lot of those changes will be inspired by uh, the pioneering thinking within cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. Um, and how all that plays out, nobody really, nobody really knows. It's, it's very, hard to, very hard to predict. Uh, but I think cryptocurrencies don't go away. Yeah. We're about out of time, Adam. So before I let you go, um, can you remind our listeners where they can find out more about you and Chain? Sure. So chain.com, email me adam at chain.com, or you can find me on Twitter uh, at Adam Ludwin. A uh, big fan of your Twitter account. Uh, some, some interesting insights without question. So I'd recommend our listeners go do that. Adam, thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you, Simon. See you later. Alrighty, thank you, Adam, and thank you, Malcolm, and thank you, Colin G. Platt. Are you going back to your field? Are you going to hang out there? I'm going back to Montpellier. Yeah, <laughs> uh, ha- have fun over there. All right, uh, let's thank our amazing production team here at Eleven FS. So Laura Watkins sitting in the corner there. Thank you very much, Michael Bailey, our wonderful, wonderful sound editor, and of course, um, assistant producer Petrick, who's not in the room today. I don't know where he is. 
um, and who's managed to keep Google Authenticator working despite changing phones. That was his big achievement this week. Well done, Petra. Um, as a reminder, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, or anybody who has a challenge in blockchain, DLT, or crypto achieve more. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can find us at 11FS.com. Uh, thank you for listening. Of course, if you like what you heard, please, please, please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, and spread the word. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week.